Welcome to Logical, the UAE's first regular legal podcast from HPL, Yamalava and Plethka here high up in Dubai's Jumeirah Lakes Towers. My name's Tim Elliott and once again, today's podcast is kind of a break from the norm, really. It's all about leadership today rather than legal matters. We've two guests for this episode. As always, here's the firm's managing partner, Ludmilla Yamalova. Always good to see you. Great to see you too, Tim, and Happy New Year. I just realized this is the first time I see you since uh, we've entered 2021. That's a good point. Back at you. Uh, plus, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome a very special guest to Logical, Krista Fox. Now, Krista is a business strategy and a leadership expert. She's also the founder of a firm, Changeosity, which specializes in guiding and advising businesses towards their strategy and leadership needs. Krista, it's really good to meet you. Thanks for making time to join us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited about today's conversation. Well, it's good to have you here. Uh, Let me start with Ludmilla, first of all, because uh, I, I guess that's where the history starts. Ludmilla, you've known Krista for some time. How did you meet? We met here at the DMCC, uh, from where we are um, recording this podcast today. So uh, Krista used to be a director of the DMCC, and as far as I was concerned, as far as my experience with the DMCC being the the government authority that licenses companies in this region, uh, she was the boss. She was the big boss, and although she was a director and, and perhaps there were other roles, um, that were senior to her role. But from my perspective as a member company, a law firm set up under the DMC's umbrella, she was ultimately the boots on the ground. She was right. the one that was making things happen. And, um, and I remember she brought me into a club of the Friends of the Free Zone Club where she, um, on a regular basis, wanted to meet with member companies to solicit their feedback and input about what it was like to be a member company licensed by the DMCC with the objective of wanting to continue to improve the services the DMCC would provide to its member companies. And I just remember, I I mean, listen, we all have dealt with government authorities uh, over the years in different countries. And the um, expectation of a, a government entity, perhaps across the world and across the board, is, is more or less the same. And that is, it's perhaps, relatively speaking, would be more bureaucratic than a, a private uh, a corporation. But um, I kept telling Krista back then, I just the way you run at this place it truly is more akin to a corporate um, culture and corporate environment where you truly seem to care about what your member companies are feeling and experiencing and wanting to incorporate those practices to uh, to improve uh, the the service of the DMCC and the product the DMCC would provide to its member companies and I was just remember she was so always humble so grounded so real so just just a good normal person and yet she was so high up in the organization and the government and and you knew that because she could make things happen and she did make things happen and uh, I remember then it was just how do you find a person like that who is such a big boss and, and at the same time so normal and so human and so real and so helpful uh, so um and that obviously was the uh, the manifestation of what it's really like to be a leader, a good leader. And it's not irrespective of how high up you stand in the organization to um, really be uh, a good leader, you know, without perhaps and these thoughts were not necessarily 
communicated or so, as crystal as, as, I, uh, as they are right now. But it was obvious that she really cared and she could make things happen because the people that worked under her and with her obviously respected her and uh, she could uh, motivate them and and uh, empower them to make real change. And so that's what I remember. And uh, I, that's why my experience and my memories of Krista from there on will, will I'll carry with, with me throughout my life because uh, she... She is true to me. She's really an example of what a leader, a real leader, should be like. It's not good to hear people say as many nice things about you oh, this early in the morning, goodness. Krista. Wow! Thank you, Ludmilla. I mean, it, you know, sometimes it can be quite um, disconcerting in a, a way to to hear someone speak about you like that. It, it, you know, it's obviously beautiful, and um, all I can say is thank you. Um, you know, as as a leader, there are so many things that go through our heads. But I think one of the the biggest mistakes, perhaps, that that many leaders make is that they think that they have to play a role that is not themselves. And you know, if I pick up on on what you were saying about this sort of maybe sense of authenticity that I, I bring to the role. Um, it's it's simply that at some point I realised it's just far too much effort. It's just too difficult to try to be somebody else, uh, you know, other than than yourself. And that that said, though, there's you know there's there's yourself as a leader, and then there's also kind of the tools and the ideas and the concepts and the you know experimentation with different behaviours that as a leader enables you to kind of tap into different influences that you can have on people. So I think what I'm trying to say here is, yes, you need to be yourself, um, but leadership and developing a leadership style is also a lifelong study. It's a, you know, it's a continuous series of observations and experimentations in human nature more than anything else. Um, and, and I think that's what really inspires me to want to be a great leader, um, but but moreover to perhaps help others to see how they can tap into some of those, those skills and toolkits of, of great leadership and influence people in a, a very positive way and help them to you know bring out the best in in themselves. That's that's what inspires me. That's my my passion around this but subject. It's also, but it's also a gift because it's one thing to be a leader in your own little kingdom or queendom when mm. you have a group of 10 and this is mm. your own little courtyard. But it's another yeah. thing when you are part of a large organization with people, with many people at different levels to be able to still exhibit those skills is a gift because it's not easy. There's so much bureaucracy everywhere. There's so much politics in any organi organization that's per perhaps above 20 people. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, what I always admired about you, and I I tried to, to, to tell you that back then as well, is that how you manage to connect with different people at different levels it cannot be easy. It could not have been easy. But you managed, and um, people not only loved you but they respected you they respected you and they looked up to you uh, and uh, to me more importantly is that I could really actually see real change happening under your uh, under your stewardship 
And so to me, it's, it's in addition to having the passion, you need to have a gift of being able to connect and uh, in, in the organization in which you were. Uh, so um, I, you know, I think mm. passion is one, but you have a perfect combination of a gift to be able to oh, communicate. I've had enough of that now. Shucks. <laughs> Shucks, exactly. But, it, I mean, this this word gift is, is an interesting um, idea for me because I've been exploring this, and, and I think I almost sort of need to step backwards first in order to, you know, share maybe some of, of my journey and, you know, why now I'm so passionate about helping other leaders to improve their leadership skills. Um it, I think it all started for me, you know, quite early on actually in my career. I was very fortunate, you know, I got picked up onto one of these graduate programs and it makes you feel quite special. You're straight out of university, you're one of just a few who have been selected, um, in my case, by uh, BP in Australia um, and we were treated quite well. We were, we were treated as, you know, quite special, the up-and-coming up leaders. When I reflect back on that time, though, I realised that so much of my behaviour was actually driven by ego. So much of it was driven by, you know, wanting to get more than somebody else, wanting to get the next promotion, frankly, at the cost of somebody else. And it really took me right into my 30s of behaving like that before I started to, to see maybe that is you know, when you become a leader of people, not a pattern that actually works very effectively, you know, but unfortunately a pattern that we see in so much leadership in the organisations. And I've been in the GCC for sort of 15, 16 years now. So, you know, I'll talk about my experience in the GCC. And, um, you know, that's a lot of the, the style of leadership we see. What was the pivotal point for me was when sort of 10, 12 years ago, I started leading business transformations. And probably what I thought initially was that it was my technical skill set that was going to enable me to be successful at leading these business trans transformations. And yes, that was important. But I began to observe the behavior of people and I even began to experiment with, if I behave like this, what reaction do I get from people? So if I'm very directive, what response do I get? In the short term, people do the things that I ask them to do. But over the longer term, um, they don't think for themselves. They always come to me for the answers. Um, and this is, this is just one example of experimenting with leadership styles and leadership behaviours and seeing the impact that it has on people. This is something that I teach leaders now. Pick, pick a hypothesis, like you've gone back to high school science class and they say you're, you're putting a basin and acid together and your hypothesis is that the solution's going to turn purple. Right, I want you to pick a hypothesis around emotional intelligence, for example. What might happen if every day I've got a team of 50 people, 60 people or 100 people, I walk around and I say hello to everybody and I engage. If I do that every day for six weeks, what changes am I going to see in the culture of the organisation? Because I promise you, leadership is actually a series of very simple things in my experience. 
Go do that experiment for six weeks and really reflect at the end of those six weeks and see what the change in behavior is of others and see how that reflects back on you. I began to become just intensely interested in what kind of impact could I have on people and their productivity and their level of engagement and empowerment if I started to do this series of experiments. And of course, that also led me to a lot of research and reading and, you know, thinking. And, and so often what would happen is kind of the reverse of what you expect. You read something and rather than learning something new, that happens sometimes, you read something and all it does is it validates that which you actually already knew was the right behavior. It just drives home the message that if I lead with curiosity and I ask others to be curious and I give them the space to be curious, you know, if I lead in a collaborative way, if I show that I care, um, and I have the courage to be real, to be myself. You know, if I take all four of those things, and I talk about those four principles because they are the principles of changeosity, um, then I'm probably a long way toward leading in a better way. So coming back to that story, what impact did that have? Suddenly I became a leader who was able to transform organisations where others had failed and it wasn't about my technical skill set. It was about bringing people on the journey, making stacks of mistakes along the way, but never blaming, never shaming, um, seeing that in a very different light. We're learning together. We're on this journey together um, and we'll learn together from those mistakes and we'll have a laugh about it and we'll say, okay, cool, we just learned how not to do it um, let's laugh about it now rather than waiting, you know, for a year and feeling bad. Um, you know, in my leadership, I would, you know, I've learned through experimentation when someone makes a mistake, but they're a good person who is ordinarily productive. The first thing I do is say, don't worry. It's okay. I console them. I don't make them feel worse. So lots of things like this that I've, I've experimented with. And I took that transformation toolkit along with me um, and that at, at some point sort of landed me in this role at the DMCC where we met Ludmilla um, and I think I was ready at that point to really take on the big transformation and practice as much of this uh, you know emotionally intelligent leadership skill set that I, I felt that I'd been learning along the way um, this very collaborative skill set and, and try and bring other leaders with me. And we did pretty well. Um, we, we did some pretty good stuff and it was, it was really fun. It's interesting that you say, Krista, that you felt ready because you talked about how it took you some time uh, in the early days from the graduate program, uh, took you into your 30s to really understand, from what I can gather, who you were and how you should be uh, impacting other people. And you, you clearly got to a point where you had attained the skill set and you'd attained a certain level of experience, but you were able to accept the fact that you were still going to make mistakes. Yep. 
Is that something that's key to really effective leadership? Look, I think it is, and it, it's something that you've got to build into the the culture. For, you know, first of all, you know what I found moving into new organisations is that you kind of you build it into the culture of your own team, and then it sort of has this maybe multiplication effect. If you if you start to also you know wrap your arms around other parts of of an, the organisation in a really collaborative way, you know, there's a hell of a lot of competition among different departments in organizations where you know this one-upmanship um and and i used to i used to be part of that i used to play a part in that until i realized that you know it was it was only harming the performance of my my own team so when i started to collaborate more and begin to use this language of experimentation Let's experiment around this one. Like, let's see if we can prove a concept on this one. We're only, you know, let's play with it first, see what it looks like before we jump in kind of boots and all. Um, And I think there's a lot of research now and a lot of writing around that language of experimentation. And it goes back to what I was saying before, which is, you know, then I began reading and seeing that, you know, Harvard Business Review talking about this language of experimentation and it begins to validate what I think we probably already knew as humans that we shouldn't jump into something expecting perfection right from the get-go. We just set ourselves up for failure when we do that. So if we can then um, build into the language of our team, the language of experimentation, then nobody feels like a failure at a personal level when some something doesn't go very well. So, yeah, I mean, thank you for asking about that. I think it's a really important part of innovating in an organisation. We all innovate in different ways. In Change Oster, we, we, we teach different styles of innovation. We teach leaders that there's not just one way of innovating. You know, not everybody is going to have that big, disruptive, incredible idea. That doesn't mean that you're not an innovator. That doesn't mean you're a failure at innovation. We just have different ways of innovating and using that language of experimenting becomes very important. This discussion is a little eye-opening for me as well because uh, I did not know this history about you from your 20s into your 30s. I just always thought you were like what I came to know you when I did come uh, to know you. Uh, So it's interesting to see that... um, the, the, the progression or the transformation that you personally went through uh, and uh, and how perhaps little residue is left uh, for anyone to pick up. I wouldn't have even picked up that you might have aspired or were motivated by different principles in the past. And that obviously is, is, is very impressive, but at the same time, very human and very real because let's face it, it's much easier for us to be confident when we have a good, solid foundation to stand on and that only really comes with time and experience and so it is easier to embrace uh, perhaps practices and principles uh, such as leadership and just being a good communicator and treating people well and all these concepts that are usually considered to be sort of soft gooey kind of things that are not serious enough for a serious organization Mm -hmm. Uh, and once you have experience and once you have some um some years behind you, perhaps it's easier to embrace and not be afraid of those gooey principles and actually realize how important they are uh, in real life. Uh, uh, Because at the end, 
technology can only take you so far and we are humans and it does the success of any organization really comes down to just that human element to be able to motivate your team to be able to uh, get their creative juices working and the best of them and the only way to do it is just to allow them to be themselves and yeah. uh, to help them be the best that they can be and that can also obviously be done in different ways but uh, if you um, create that sense of adversity or competition and uh, it's not perhaps very productive well, it's just not a nice place to be is it an organization that is toxic that you know makes people feel bad every day and it, look Ludmilla you know I wish that I had come to this realization much sooner and as you were speaking a, a beautiful sort of Greek saying came into my head which is through suffering comes wisdom and the suffering for me as a leader was some years back when I did a 360 d degree feedback and a couple of members of my team said things like um, she's false and she laughs too loud and you know she over praises um, and I spent a whole weekend you know feeling sick about that because what I perceived in myself as being um, characteristics that I admired were actually, I realized, characteristics that were frankly really annoying to other people. And I was coming across to them as being fake. So my, you know, high degree of energy and enthusiasm just, you know, is not everybody's cup of tea. Um, now, you know, that, that sort of, that realization came not, you know, in a way as an epiphany, but, but in a way also, um, as a, a disciplined practice. So I think leadership is as much about inherently, and, and you know, you talked about the gift before. Um, maybe the, re the real gift is the gift of reading about leadership, the gift of learning about leadership tools. Um, but, you know, is leadership an inherent gift that, that we, you know, just have as part of our upbringing? I'm, I'm thinking probably probably not um, but a reverse question to that could you teach anybody leadership I think you need to want it um, and this is where when we set up changeosity one of the things that we said right from the get-go is that many many leaders and organizations will not be for us um, and they won't be for us is because they don't want us they are not in the headspace, they're not the you know the kind of organisation or the kind of leaders who really value what we bring to the table. Um, and if I, I step back a little bit in, into some of the research, there's a there's a, a nice piece of research that says if you're really good technically as a leader, you know maybe you're an accountant, a CFO, maybe you're you, you know you're a guru in marketing. If you're really good technically. Um, the research says about 15% of your, your people will say you're a great leader. If you've got really great um, personal interaction skills, but not maybe so great technically, about 12 to 13% of your people will say you're a great leader. Combine the two and it shoots up to 75%. So you can't be one or the other. You actually need to be both. I mean, why is this important? It's important because... Again, the research shows that when we work for a leader who we admire, 75% of, of 
the time, let's take the first research, we're actually far more productive, we do a lot more for the organisation, we empower ourselves, you know, we're motivated, we do better. For, I, I want to step back though for, for a moment and, and go back to, you know, that moment of, of suffering and realising not everybody likes me. Um, and that was tough for me. And it was only about five years later that um, I ran into a, a really wonderful leadership developer called Stefan Melchior. Um, and I, you know, I still work with Stefan today. And Stefan taught me and a number of other leaders within my organisation um, behaviours around social styles. And social styles has been around for thousands of years. Read a book uh, called Surrounded by Idiots uh, by Thomas Erickson to learn about social styles. And what you'll learn is that only about a quarter of the people in the world really connect immediately with you. That kind of, that you know, that immediate sense of, oh, you know, we understand each other. Three quarters of the people in the world or people in the room are going to find you, quite frankly, a little bit annoying. The key to this, however, is recognising what are the aspects of the way I behave that don't really gel with other people? What are the aspects of their behaviour that I now understand a little bit better and if I can step a little bit closer to them um, and behave in a way that makes them feel a little bit more comfortable. So let me give that example. I'm highly expressive in my style, but if I'm dealing with somebody who takes a lot longer to you know, come to an idea or needs to dot the I's and cross the T's and mull over things for five days, you know, to me that's annoying. But if I can be a little bit more understanding, give them the time and space they need, you know, I can actually lead them in a way that is more productive for them as well, feels better, is more positive. Um, it's a practice, it's a discipline, and, and that's um, and that was one of the leadership epiphanies for me, social styles. I encourage everybody to read about it. And I'm, I'm guessing that emotional intelligence, and I'm going to ask you for a favour, actually, Krista, to define emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, if you would, sure. in a moment. But it, yeah. that's, a, that's a quality in, well, in anybody, but particularly in a leader, mm. that's worth its weight in gold. Yep. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting, Tim, because, you know, there's there's actually now this idea that there are four kinds of intelligences you know there's iq this is sort of your ability to um, you know maybe do abstract reasoning and mathematical reasoning and uh, you know understand words and, and language there's eq the emotional intelligence or emotional sort of quotient um, there's social intelligence your ability to interact effectively uh, with people um, and, and more recently, this idea of resilience or re your, your intelligence around resilience to wear um, and bounce back from difficulties in life. And, uh, you know, if I start with sort of the last one first, um, you know, I face some difficulties in, in my life, some traumas in my life, as have so many people. Um, but the question is, you know, can you weather that and can you get back to a place of positivity? Because ultimately, these things happen 
to us? Are they going to beat us down or, you know, are we going to somehow get through it and find positivity? Um, but when I look at emotional intelligence, it's really got two dimensions. It's got the self dimension, the, the inner, the inner part of me, my, uh, my self reflection, self awareness is the, the starting point of emotional intelligence. Do I really understand myself? So if we look at social styles as being an aspect of that, do I understand what my impact is on the world around me um, as a result of the, of the way I behave? Then there's the self-management piece. It's the discipline to say, I want right now to give a really, you know, quick-witted, um, sarcastic response. You know, that, that, that was kind of amused me in my 30s to, to be that kind of that sarcastic person. But actually the impact of that on, on others can be a put down. Do I actually want to be that person? So these days I'm a lot more disciplined and self-managed when I recognise that that little, you know, amygdala, the, the reptilian part of the brain in me wants to do that quick-witted response. You know, I'll stop, I'll pause, I'll wait a moment, and I call it pausing the reptile. Um, and this is something that, that we teach leaders when we talk about emotional intelligence. So that's sort of the self piece, the self-awareness, self-management. But then you've also got to look at social awareness and social skills, we call it. Social awareness is looking at all the people around us and how they're behaving and how they're being impacted by things and how they might be feeling. Um, you know, we teach leaders a model called toward and, you know, maybe we don't have time to explain it all now, but, you know, toward is a model that allows us to recognize toxic behavior. There's a lot of toxic behavior that comes our way in the corporate world. And for many people, they take it on board as their own failing. When you begin to recognize that much of the time that toxic behavior is not your failing, it's actually the unfortunate behavior of somebody else. So don't take it on board and feel worse about yourself. Just recognize it for what it is. Put up, you know, the magic bubble or the, the toxic behavior just, you know, bounces, bounces off because we see it coming. That's sort of the, the social awareness piece. Then the social skills. This is where we begin to employ, um, you know, behaviors that can be very helpful for navigating the political world of, of the, the corporate. Um, read, I, I would, you know, recommend to anybody who's listening to this podcast, read the latest article in Harvard Business Review. Um, it's in the De December issue. It is called, um, I'm just flicking to it now, which is why you can hear the papers turning, How to Develop Your Leadership Style. And it talks about two very interesting markers of leadership, powerful and attractive. Um, for any uh, leader out there, just kind of run through that and see where you fall on either side of the spectrum. And, you know, that might actually provide a key to why your leadership might not be resonating within your team or your organisation um, for those leaders who are out there struggling a little bit. So listening to all this and uh, brings me uh, back to, to sort of reminding, perhaps we're putting it out there as to why we decided to host this podcast is because uh, let's not forget we're in the legal field. Now, 
legal field involves so many different practices, and many of them are uh, simply transactional corporate, but many of them relate to disputes, dispute resolutions. And so much of what we see as lawyers comes down to perhaps, if you were to just listening to you, Krista, just if you break it down to perhaps lack of leadership and and uh, maybe we don't think of it that way. And uh, I, I was taking notes as you were speaking because I think we can even take it out outside of the corporate world. Perhaps when we talk about leadership, we think corporate, corporate environment. But we, uh, a lot of the skills you mentioned, uh, they apply if you, if you even, even if you take it out of the, per, the corporate world into the personal domain, the personal yeah. world, just the personal relationships. Because in our legal practice, we see... Uh, anything starting from, let's say, employment disputes. I mean, so many of these disputes happen simply because somebody does not know how to lead. And and these, and often and sadly, uh, they come down to very small things where, for example, the employee is being terminated. Fair enough. This is life. It's business. But if only they were terminated in the way that made them feel good about themselves. They would have yes. walked away. They would, there would not have been a dispute. They would not have considered filing that court case. But only because they felt offended. And again, it's emotion. Uh, and, and we do tell them because when they come to us as lawyers, we say, listen, I mean, there is, this is an emotional response. Yeah. It's an emotional reaction. And it's fair enough and it's important, but it will cost you money and it will cost you even more emotions because going through a court process, through a legal de- uh, debate is not easy emotionally and financially. So therefore, let's try to put emotions aside and focus on the practical side of things. We, we, tr- we reason with our clients. We, we tell them that, but, you cannot take away the emotions. We are, at the end, dealing with humans. And uh, we, I often send them home and say, just, just process this, think about it, and uh, see if you can set emotions mm-hmm. aside and if we can figure out a more practical solution to this. But so many times we've had disputes, a fairly large ticket disputes, simply because somebody was terminated after working for a company for 10 years mm-hmm. where they felt that they gave their heart and soul and then somebody just came in the door unannounced and said, well, sorry, but after these 10, 15 years of service, we don't want you anymore. And on the one side, they, this employee knew that that's okay. It's fine. This is just part of the game. But the way it was done to them all of a sudden had the effect of erasing 10 yeah. years of history. Yeah. And, and it, it was only because of that they said, you know, no, I want, I want to make it right. I want to teach them a lesson. This is not right for them to have treated me this way after all that I've done. Again, it's emotional, and perhaps from a, from a practical standpoint, or even sometimes from a legal standpoint, it's not really an argument uh, that's worth pursuing. But you cannot take that away. Uh, it, it happens. It happens all too often because we're humans. And you just think that only this is where you... Uh, you go back to thinking, my goodness, you, who is it that made the decision to let this employee go in, in under these circumstances? Because all it would have required is a little bit of a softer touch. Absolutely. And it would have just ended up, a, the person would have signed the document right there and then. They would have shaken hands and they would have hugged each other pre-corona days. 
<laughs> and uh, they w- and and the memory would have continued. Yeah. And so so this is why this leadership is, as as yeah. perhaps as we're talking about it as it may is as much as it may seem to be somewhat unrelated to law it is so <laughs> intimately actually it, it interrelated is. and and intertwined uh, with what we see in our legal practice and I'll just I'll, I'll make one more comment and then I'll turn it back to you Krista but also take it out of corporate world into personal relationships divorces and that's why when you were talking about it some of the social skills and social awareness and self-awareness and self self-management terms that I'm to be honest with you I in the context that I heard them today this was the first time I heard them uh, that way but um, you just think about it my goodness if those people only had a little bit or exercise a little more of that self-awareness of self-management these this, these divorces might not it might not have led to a divorce to begin with, mm. and it, even if it did, it just would have been a little less acrimonious. And so, how do you translate um, uh, those skills? How do you teach people those skills to help them avoid uh, these mm. uh, otherwise expensive and emotionally toxic uh, legal battles? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such an interesting topic, and and lots of things going through my mind. Um, the the first one I think is is to say you know how proud I was of my team at the DMCC when they created a, a mediation centre, which was, you know, to, to actually deal with these issues that were, that were coming up increasingly, and particularly as the zone kind of grew in terms of the number of employees. I think when I arrived in 2012, there were something like 10,000 employees. And, and, and when I left in, in 2019, it was more like 70,000. You know, that's a lot of potential disputes. Um, and and that mediation centre, the the team did an incredible job of of doing exactly what you're talking about. The problem is, though, it's almost a little bit too late. And in my view, there are some really practical things that leaders can do, and it's almost kind of a do's and don'ts list. The first thing is when an employee has you know begun to irritate you. Um, because for whatever reason, you know, as a leader, they're just not fulfilling whatever it is you, you require of them. Something can happen and it's called halos and horns. Um, and, and, and halos and horns basically means when you really like someone and they're doing well, everything they do is fabulous. Um, but when someone's begun to irritate you, no matter what they do, it's like they're wearing horns. You know, everything is just another proof point. Um, that they're no good at, at what they do. At this point, you need to employ leadership discipline. And th- and it goes a little bit like this. You need to decide, is this person right for the organisation going forward or not? If they're not, you need to make a decision promptly because it's only going to get worse. But then you also have to make a promise to yourself, which is that you will respect them, treat them with respect and dignity and caring right until that very last day, no matter how hard it is to do that. Then the the second thing is when you have that conversation with the person, it is not the time to talk about all their weaknesses and failings. Um, Just don't do it. It is the time to say thank you for your service. You know, I think unfortunately both of us can see that for whatever reason this organisation is no longer the right organisation for you going forward. You know, I thank you for everything that you've done. You know, what I'd like to do is, um, you know, give, give you an, a, an offer now which is a termination 
document obviously you will have gone through you know all of the the legal piece and had the formal performance warnings and all of that which uh, Ludmilla can advise you very aptly on you need to do that piece but it's got to be a you know a loving caring pleasant conversation you have an opportunity for that person to be one of your advocates and I would always recommend you always no matter how you feel about them you know offer them some assistance um, to go forward in their career. Now, that's assuming that it's not a, um, a clause sort of 120 and, you know, kind of gross mis uh, misconduct kind of conversation. Um, but I have seen leaders who use the opportunity of a termination conversation to press home the point of what a loser this person <laughs> is, right, to, to somehow use it as an opportunity to shame them and make them feel terrible about it themselves I mean what kind of leadership is that it, it just it appalls me quite frankly um, and we can do so much better so thank you for raising that point um, I hope anyone who is listening and you know in future is coming up to one of those kind of conversations I know it is difficult um, but think beforehand what would an emotionally intelligent leader do today and you'll know the answer. One thing you mentioned was mediation. And it's true uh, during your time at the DMCC, that was one of the huge developments that, that you introduced, and that was the mediation team. To this day, we use the services mediation team. And uh, I have to tell you, I wish we saw more of the mediation type services that existed in, in this region. Mm. But in the way... First, it doesn't exist as much as perhaps in, in other countries, and uh, I'll use the U.S. as an example uh, shortly. But also, and perhaps they're interrelated, the ones that do exist are not very effective. Mm -hmm. Because to be an effective mediator, you equally need to have leadership skills, is what yeah. I have realized, to really be effective. Because let's let's uh, not forget, when do you when does mediation happen? Is when you have two people coming from opposite sides. And so here you're trying to reason with two people and ultimately bring them closer together. And to do that, when people are already at odds, you yourself need to be emotionally intelligent. And to go back to the term that you used, uh, Krista, to be effective, you, you need to have the technical skills. You need to understand the subject matter to be able to educate both sides about the technical issues. But you also need to have the emotional intelligence or the leadership skills to be able to communicate that in a way in the authoritative and yet effective way with both sides again keeping in mind that they're coming from different uh, different polar opposite sides mm. and that doesn't quite exist in this region and even yeah. in in the, the, the mediation centers that do exist here in the region they're not very effective because those people for the most part don't have either the right skills or the right uh, the right tools uh, to to really be effective, and it's a pity because so many of the disputes would just be would would disappear or would resolve in a lot more amicable and mm. a lot more effective way if the person in between was actually an effective leader. Uh, and I'll use an example from. In the U.S., for example, in most uh, court cases and litigation, there's always what's called the mandatory dispute uh, step. 
or mediation, sorry, it's it's mandatory mediation step. Now, mandatory mediation sounds like somewhat of an oxymoron because mediation, by the very uh, definition of it, is is, <laughs> a, is is by choice. But mandatory in the sense that uh, during a litigation, during a court process, the court says, "Okay, time out, everyone. You've made your submissions, you've made your arguments. Uh, now, time out for the next two or three weeks." And uh, here's the court mediator. You can either select your own or, you know, here's a, a suggestion uh, from the court in terms of who you may want to speak with in the next two or three weeks. So it's mandatory in the sense that it's part of the court process to do the timeout and have parties refer to a mediator. But obviously, it's not mandatory in the sense that you cannot force the parties to actually settle a dispute by mediation or amicably. But it is a mandatory step in the process. And... And it happens at the time when parties have had the time to brief their arguments and their sides of the story so that they are both more informed, the court is, is more informed, and obviously the mediator has something to work off of. And um, in most cases, it, it's it, the, those mediations do, uh, do resolve uh, positively mm-hmm. because that mediator has the, the, the two elements, A, the experience, the expertise, the technical skills, mm. and then B, the uh, perhaps the, the emotional, the leadership uh, hat on where they can communicate effectively to both parties to uh, convince them to come together. Uh, so it's uh, it's so it, it, yeah that leadership aspect mm. comes into so many different and uh, so many different angles and so many mm. different layers, uh, including during the uh, during the court proceedings. But in order to really be effective, you, it needs to really be effective. Mm. And that is those, those same people have to have the training, the experience mm. in leadership. And, and we, this region in particular would benefit greatly if we had more of that here. And that is more effective mediations, which we're working towards, but we're not mm. quite there yet now. I think you're right. I mean, so much of it is actually about the human interaction side and you know it, it it sort of reminds me of that quite fondly of the journey that we went through with the, the DMCC mediation center uh, because in the very early days I think we were more um, less less sort of mediation and, and more decision maker you know so we would sort of hear two sides of the, the story and 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 you know almost then kind of give a give a, a decide on the conclusion and you know it was very interesting because I think a lot of the time that was accepted because we were seen as the regulator and and kind of authorized to do so um, and then at some point we we realized that that center really needed to go across and be managed by our legal and compliance team rather than the the business team and uh, be able to sort of step back and and do what is you know truly mediation which is you know to not necessarily give the conclusions but share um, share the information, guide the conversation, and you know allow the, the parties to to come to a conclusion. I actually found that personally very difficult because a lot of the time, to me, the answer was was pretty obvious, um, and you know there was a lot of time that felt like it was wasted in in conversation that that didn't necessarily lead um, somewhere. But you know, I was assured that. Uh, it was not our role as as regulator to actually decide, and and that does seem quite correct, you know, considering that, you know, who who are we to to know all the facts in a particular case? We are not the sort of judge judge and juror. But another point that I think is important to make here is that we often, um, you know, err on the side of, of 
uh, perhaps blaming the employer in many of these cases. And we say, well, if only there were better leadership from the employer side. But I would also argue that sometimes we need self-leadership from the employee side as well. Um, and it, it kind of comes back often to that halo and horns thing again, which is that we can get ourselves as human beings kind of caught up in this whole series of um, feelings and emotions around a, an event that you know we think we've been wronged or we think we've been slighted and you know and we were right in our own headspace and before we know it we've created this whole story um, and the story from the other person's perspective looks entirely different and the reason I raise this is because there were more than a few employers who received an email from a DMCC or from the DMCC you know, mediation centre because an employee had come in and raised a case without ever once indicating to their employer that they had any kind of a concern. So there's, there's a little bit of you know, taking responsibility on both sides here. One of the things you you mentioned, you said, and I was going to jump on it at the time, which you said uh, while you when you were observing these various mediation and, and disputes, uh, that often the answer was very clear to you. And I was going to jump on that and said, yeah, and most of the time, actually, it is not clear because there's always two sides of the story. And unless you have heard those two sides of the story, the answer is not clear. And it's for the very same reasons I was going to jump in, but you preempted me somewhat, uh, is because it's the blame. It travels both ways. And we have seen a fair share of, uh, of disputes that are raised purely by employees uh, because of their own sense of um, entitlement mm. uh, and, and unjustified sense of entitlement and unjustified sense of greatness. Uh, and and very, very often, and most of the time, as you said, uh, it comes from this sort of uh, this, this sense of victimhood, and that is that they are being wronged. And it's interesting because often when you hear people talk about them being wronged and them being victims, if you hear them a little longer, it seems to be sort of often the pattern in their lives. <laughs> they just yeah. are always victims. Yeah. And and we've seen that on so many different uh, fronts in our legal practice from, from employees, from employers, from clients, from partners, uh, and uh, from you know, in family disputes that one just takes on this sort of victim role. And it's just... And it's, it's interesting, it's almost like they're buried in this, in the woods with this mindset. You just cannot snap them out. Nothing, they, nobody can do anything right. Uh, and uh, they are just, they're always being wronged. And, and that obviously comes from, often from the employees. Uh, and it, uh, it leads to very unpleasant disputes because you cannot reason with them. I don't know whose fault it is that the company would, have ended up with an employee like that and that perhaps that employee uh, was allowed to stay longer than he or she should have. Uh, but it, it's, it's, you see, it's never, it's never easy because mm. equally so we're all humans or so companies will make mistakes and hire the wrong person. And, uh, but how long do you allow this person to stay? Because the longer they stay, the more toxic the rest of the, of the organization Ooh. becomes. Yeah. And, and in all it takes is just that one wrong employee. But, I mean, this is where, as a leader, you, you've got to have the courage to recognise that, you know, this, this person just may not be right for our organisation. But, you know, equally when, 
when we teach leadership, um, and often it's it is the upper echelons of, of organisations. You know, we work with with organisations right across the GCC, typically sort of the C-suite, all industries. One of the things we say is that you know this leadership development can't just stop with you. You can't just sort of see it as you know great, you know mine now. I'm 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 going to hold this for myself and and. Uh, you know benefit from it the, the benefit from it is when you then take it and you coach and you support and you mentor your team members to behave differently as well um i've, I've sort of lost my my train of thought on that i, I wanted to make an, another point but um it'll come back to me one thing i wanted to um comment on is that in addition to being a good leader, and perhaps it is part of being a good leader, and this is, we don't really necessarily think of it directly, but just having the right documentation and systems in place, mm-hmm. because that takes away so much of the emotion and mm-hmm. uncertainty and confusion. Mm-hmm. And so when I say that, it's, for example, you take it back to um, the partnership disputes yeah. for, I mean, we see so many of them, is that um, they, they come to, when obviously they, they start butting heads, they come to a law firm to come up to us mm. and they say, well, but this was what we agreed on. But uh, so this partner is on honoring his or her commitment be- because this is what they said that they would do, but they didn't. Mm. And then it's fair enough. But OK, what what is there to document that understanding or the agreement? Yeah. And so often that is lacking uh, in, in the most in the most sort of glaring uh, and uh, you know, almost uh, unbelievable circumstances because you know, when people are investing millions of, of, of dirhams, mm. you'd think that, that you, they would start with the documentation, and yet often it isn't. And uh, if they only had just sat down and just even written by hand what it is that they agreed on, so much of what they were experiencing uh, afterwards could have just been dealt with uh, maturely. And it is in there. And same, th- and same in, in, in the employment cases and in the organizations. Uh, when you're talking about an employee who is perhaps uh, a toxic employee and, and is affecting the rest of the organization, in most cases what we see is that when the company comes to us and say they want to terminate, there is nothing there to rely on in legal terms to be able to, 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 to rely on in order to perhaps make a legal argument. Uh, and, um, and that's the pity of it. It's so, mm-hmm. So I think it's also as part of being a good leader, you also need to make sure that you have the right systems and tools and, and documentations in place at the right time. Because And the right time also is, is, is an operative um, phrase here because I'll give you an example uh, from my own practice is that at some point in time, we decided that we would implement a, a scanner at the door, a finger scanner, just basically a security mechanism. But it, it happened once we already had employees in place and they took it such the wrong, they, 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 sh- they were shocked. Is that, well, you don't trust us? Why would you do this? Uh, what does this mean for us? And, well, we've had the system now for, I think, seven or eight years, and whoever comes in now don't, doesn't even think about mm-hmm. it. So, But it's because this is what they stepped into. It was not introduced later, so you just accept it uh, as, as part of your practice. And so if more organizations had those systems and, and tools clearly in place and documented and explained, so much of the confusion and their sort of shock and panic would be avoided simply because they had the right things at the right time. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two points I'd love 
to make there. The, the first one is thank you. You triggered my my memory about sort of this toxic behaviour, and and that is that. Um, again, lots of research that shows, and, and it tends to be particularly in the sales arena, you know, think of that, you know, incredibly high performing salesperson who, quite frankly, just behaves very poorly. And um, when, when we finally look at the, the outcome when somebody like that is let go, the rest of the team's performance elevates. So it's that, you know, the rotten tomato, you know, rots all of the other tomatoes very quickly. Um, have the bravery as a leader to let go of somebody despite the fact that you might think they're high performing actually the impact they have on everybody else is a net deficit to the organization do not let people get away with bad behavior well said and all it takes is just one person and when that one person goes it just the kind of this the cloud is suddenly lifted and Everybody else comes out of uh, the woodworks yeah. and it's just you see a different side to them. It's yeah. pretty amazing how all it takes is just I, one person. I had, I had one client. We we did a, um, a sort of a team building exercise and they actually made a poster um, and the poster had the witch is gone and the angel has arrived. <laughs> Now, what's so interesting about that is that nobody ever spoke about the impact that the witch was having on them um, but what they spoke about was the, the relief when the witch was gone so you know that's that's a pretty scary realization but I do want to talk a little bit about this sort of I suppose this challenge or conundrum that you have when you're setting up a company um, and that is that you've got to be the master of everything right when you're when you're an SME and you've been through this Ludmilla and I've been through it much more recently you've got to be the accountant the marketer the salesperson the deliverer the logistics person the HR uh, the, HR, the, the computer you know, person right the IT help desk the, the whole bit turn it off and back on again Um, the cleaner. One of the, the, the things I've discovered actually through, I, I run a peer-to-peer -peer advisory board for SMEs and, and all we really do is get together once a month and help each other um, with good advice to run our businesses in a better way. And, you know, if you tap into that HR piece, because we were obviously talking about kind of managing performance, I highly recommend everybody takes a look at a platform called OneClick. It's a number one, um, C-L-I-Q-U-E. Um, and the reason I tap into this one in particular, founded by uh, a man by the name of Eamon uh, Badawi, an HR expert, what he has done is he has created a cloud-based platform that is totally affordable to SMEs to take all of the guesswork away from properly managing their HR processes. Um, we're not HR experts, but if we're guided by someone who is an HR expert and it's on a platform that's affordable and it's in the cloud, um, you don't have to have that expertise to actually do all of the steps in the right way. I mean, I've, t I've, I've mentioned one click, but in reality, what I'm talking about is lots and lots of digital platforms that enable you to scale your business. Even when you've got one employee, do it the right way from the start. When we set up our business, you know, we hadn't even invoiced the first invoice. We set up on zero straight away. And the reason we set up on a 
cloud-based scalable platform is because we were soon expecting to have hundreds of clients and hundreds of invoices. And the last thing I wanted was to have to rebuild everything from an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and, it, and, and maybe that had been particularly because I'd had so many conversations with SME leaders over the years when I was heading up the free zone who had had to do exactly that. They'd kind of started the whole business on an Excel spreadsheet and documents. And at some point, you know, fortunately for them, the businesses that had actually grown, but the administration of the business was in a right mess. It's a lot harder to unpick and start again than it is to just do it in the right way from the start. I, I could uh, I could attest to that because that's exactly <laughs> how I started and what I went through and and switching platforms from an Excel spreadsheet and mm. where things are being tied by rubber bands and uh, bubble gum mm. uh, into the digital domain is uh, not easy. Yeah. Yes, it's quite painful. It's but uh, so if you have the tools, if you have the time, uh, that certainly is uh, is the right way to do it. And on that note, also just one comment I wanted to make is that for so many businesses here, if they only took that time and actually done things correctly, they might not have actually gone on with the business. They would not have carried on with the business because mm -hmm. they would have realized, for example, A, how expensive it may be for them to run a business, B, perhaps that uh, how, uh, how unprofitable their business model might be, mm -hmm. and then C, perhaps how limited they were or you know how much competition there was already in the market. If only they did that. But there's um, here in particular, we see so much mm -hmm. of that where businesses get set up and then have to fold and, and just within the matter of within a year because it's, of that. It's the dream that becomes the nightmare and, you know, it's a really awful thing to see and I, and I saw it a lot in the DMCC days as well that, you know, we, what my team and I used to often talk about is, you know, we're helping to bring somebody's dream to life. You know, they might have worked for 15, 20 years in the corporate world and they're ready to take the big leap of running their own business. And, you know, that's that's about realising a, a dream. And the last thing we wanted was to be kind of part of the, you know, catalyzing the, the nightmare. So that was something that really inspired us to to want to get better and better and faster and more streamlined in, in our processes. But, you know, I think setting that thing aside, um, what we now do as, as Changeosity is we help people create the right strategy from the start. Um, we as a business said we promise to ourselves that we will take good governance, even though we're very small, we'll take all of our good governance practices, having board meetings, delegation of authority, um, annual budgets based on our strategy, our low, medium, worst case budgets, you know, completing our financial accounts, having them audited on an annual basis. Yes, those things have a cost associated with them, but one day we're going to be a big organization and we're going to thank ourselves for having put all those good governance practices in place from the get-go. Um, but it's not always easy, as we said before. We don't always have all that knowledge on how to do it right from the start. You know, maybe a peer-to-peer -peer advisory board is a good way to go for people who are kind of limited on budget. But equally, there's a lot of great information available to you on the internet 
on how do you build a strategy you know how do you build a, pr a proper financial forecast you've just got to find the time to do it and got to recognize working on your business rather than always in the business is actually a good investment and that's the takeaway from today's uh, conversation that i would like uh, to memorialize and that is exactly that so it's just if if information is power and timely information is even more power so if uh, we could encourage uh, businesses the budding businesses the aspiring entrepreneurs uh, to actually uh, obtain the right information at the right time uh, and from a legal perspective what we often hear is that well thankfully i i don't i did not need a lawyer and i haven't needed a lawyer but that's that's said those comments are said in the context of lawyers being perceived as the troubleshooters when there is already a trouble that's happening mm. and that's too late as you said earlier if we could if we could encourage people to come earlier to the likes of your organization for example changeosity as you said uh, and uh, us as a law firm or any other law firm to actually obtain advice early on okay so what is that i need to know about setting up a business uh, so that, yes, as you said, there's a cost to it. But that cost will be there no matter what. You will need to do your auditing. You will need to do your accounting. You will need to have your resolutions properly drafted. And it's better that you set up the platform early on and properly than then to undo the damage, which we do all the time. All these board resolutions, all these shareholder resolutions. It's just that you review them. It's who drafted them? Why? What do they say? You don't even know what they, they, they communicate. Mm -hmm. And yet you have years and years of, of those kinds of records. To undo them, it's, it's, it's damage control. Uh, so and the cost that's involved in doing that is so much greater. So it's a penny wise pound foolish kind of uh, mindset. So if uh, that that's the takeaway I would like to, um, uh, to to leave our listeners with is exactly that: just obtain information early in time and uh, the relevant information from the right people uh, before you invest too much, uh, because then that's how you avoid going to lawyers to actually deal with your disputes. Uh, so lawyers, for example, are not just there to, to do damage control, but they're there to help you that you don't get into trouble to begin with. And your organization, like you said, uh, Krista, there's every business, let's face it, it's about money. So you need to obtain the right advice from the right people who understand what it means to spend money and how you allocate money in your books and what you need to budget for and accrue for. Uh, and then you need to know that early on, because we see too many people just say yes, start spending money, investing money, uh, only to understand that you six months down the road that uh, all they've been doing is just throwing good money after bad. Uh, and it's because they did not seek proper financial or accounting uh, services or advice mm -hmm. uh, at the outset. And I'll tell you here in this region, it's very, very atypical for a, a startup or somebody who's starting wanting to do a business to actually seek advice from the organization like yours, for example, or even from a law firm like ours. Uh, so, but I hope that with this, this podcast and this conversation, uh, there'll be uh, perhaps more appreciation uh, for what, what we offer. Krista, what about you? Final thoughts. And if we can come back uh, and kind of drag ourselves back to specifically yeah. lead the leadership aspects once again, what, what would you like, like to leave uh, listeners of this podcast with? Yeah, I, I mean, I think what I really want to say is that if we can create better leaders, 
they can create better organisations with, with, with a number of purposes in mind. Um, one is obviously financial s sustainability. You know, if, if we want to continue to exist, we have to have a, a strong commercial proposition. Um, but if we can create organisations where people actually feel happy and productive and empowered, um, that, that, that financial piece tends to actually come with it. So I think that's really the, the parting thought and, and to work on yourself as a leader, to, to study leadership, to recognise that you have a massive impact on people every single day and your technical skills alone um, only inspire 12% of the people. Um, you can get to 75% uh, if you just look at the research by really beginning to look at how your behaviour as a leader impacts others. And we've seen some incredible results with the organisations that we've been working with. And, you know, it, it makes me feel excited to see that there are leaders across the GCC who have realised that their style of leadership is not quite working and they're really willing to step into that very vulnerable space of, you know, wanting to do better. And that's another episode of Logical, this time, leadership. Thanks to our very special guest today, Krista Fox, business strategy and leadership expert, the founder of Changeosity. You can find out more at changeosity.com. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to hear from you today, uh, Krista. Thanks for joining us on Logical. Oh, Tim and Ludmilla, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope it's been helpful to people who listen to the podcast. I'm sure it is. I think it's been a great chat. Plus, uh, and I can't forget you, uh, Ludmilla, the person never stuck for a legal answer uh, or something to say. Ludmilla Yamalova is the managing partner here at Yamalova and Plethka. As ever, thank you for your expertise. Thank you both. It was a truly insightful, interesting and warm discussion, um, just like I mentioned it even better. So thank you both. If you have a legal question you'd like answered in a future episode of Logical or if you'd like a consultation with a qualified UAE experienced legal professional, you can now WhatsApp us on 0097152 or just head to lylawyers.com and click contact.